Hello and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan and I am a portfolio manager with Redwheel. In these CFA UK podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts and others within the financial industry as we face the challenge of climate change. In this episode, I'm joined by Lucille Bonnet, a vice from outside the UK and from an investment area that is vital to the transition, but doesn't receive the same attention perhaps as the more mainstream public and private equity, and that is venture capital. Lucille is managing partner of the Klima Energy Transition Fund, a late-stage venture fund supporting energy tech companies in their early growth phase. Lucille has more than 13 years of experience in the field of venture capital in Europe. After working six years for Energy Venture Capital, the venture capital arm of the leading German utility RWE, she joined high-tech Gründerfund in 2015. As principal, she built a portfolio of 14 investments in the fields of energy, automation, and with a particular focus on B2B technology companies. Lucille has been a board member or observer to more than 10 companies and is today a member of the advisory board of Sunroof, Klima's portfolio company. Lucille joined Klima as co-founder in 2021. And with that, welcome Lucille. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. And so to begin with Lucille, can you guide us through your career path? What initially attracted you to become an investor and how did you end up in venture capital? Yes, sure. I finalized my studies in uh, finance uh, based out of Spain, um, actually, and uh, did some master work around um, the impact of the financial crisis on renewable energy. And before that, I had actually some experience in the banking space, um, and through which I realized very quickly that that would not be uh, something for me. I realized I need something um, a bit more entrepreneurial. Um, and through through my studies, I uh, basically wanted a, a great mix of entrepreneurship and, and finance, I think. And that's the reason why I, uh, early on, that was back in 2009, searched for uh, basically doing venture capital um, and also doing this in, in the field of energy um, and, and in the clean tech space. Um, so I think the venture capital is, is the mix of the finance and entrepreneurship uh, topic, I think, on, 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 on one hand. On the clean tech um, and yeah, energy uh, topics, I think, have, um, yeah, it's a sector that's uh, always fascinated me um, to some extent. It's been, um, it's, it's, it's at the core of each and every economy. So as a um, trained economist, I uh, really like that sector, I would say. And I also, um, basically, from very early on, wanted to also dedicate my career path to, um, yeah, fight against climate change at the end of the day. Um, and so, yeah, I tried to combine um, all that um, to find uh, to find a position in in in, in VC um, and also in in the energy space. So I went to Germany um, to to try off there. And so was energy your first position? I studied at uh, RWE Energy. Um, it was basically a, a German utility. Um, uh, and I started off for working there for their venture capital arm, uh, quite European. Um, so we're investing all over Europe uh, in basically clean tech companies. Uh, we did this, I did this for, for six years, started off as, as an analyst there. Um, and, uh, and then um, basically wanted to change a little bit um, a fund in order to make sure that they also work for um, for an independent uh, and financial oriented fund, not only for strategic fund. So I went off to work for uh, an early stage fund called Heidi Grenafon, um and joined their industrial tech team. Um, and there I had the opportunity to to build up an own portfolio of investment um, in, in the field. So with a focus on on energy and automation. Um, and back in the days, so I, I stayed another six years in, in that fund, um, I had 
um, a lot of exposure to many different transactions, mostly actually focused on the DAC region. Um, and as part of that experience, I, I met my current partner um, at Klima. We were both uh, working on the board of one um, great company, uh, developing software and sensors for the optimization of wind farm. Um, so pretty much in the sweet spot of uh, what Klima would, would look at today. Um, uh, we worked together with, uh, went through ups and downs uh, with, with that company and uh, and finalized the, the journey with a with successful exit in, in 2020. Um, and that was the yeah that was the beginning of of Klima's creation. And these companies that you're focused at this point, they're very early stage companies. Is that right? Yes, the, it was seed financing. So uh, the, I focused at the, at that stage uh, a bit more, uh, much earlier stage, uh, which was a bit of a contrast compared to uh, what I used to do at uh, RW Energy, which was a bit later stage. Uh, let's say Series A and B investment. And uh, now what we're doing at at Klima is uh, really looking at later stage uh, companies, so from Series B onwards, um, and companies. Basically, they have a very strong product market fit um, and that have a proof point within the market. And we're here to help them accelerate their growth and uh, make their impact greater. And so what led you to, I guess, move from the early stage to more growth phase? What prompted you to think about, OK, Klima is the, is the fund that you would like to, to, to found? There are a few things here. Um, when I started to invest in the, let's say, in the clean tech sector, uh, how it's called, it was it was called back back then. That really was the, you know, the the topping on the cake, um, and and that really was not, let's say, the main sector within the energy sector. It was, uh, you know, much much smaller. Um, and well, there are few reasons for that, uh, but over time and in the last decades, renewables really made great progress when it comes to uh, economical uh, terms. And so, as Klima uh, was uh, being set up um, in 2020, I had also kind of the experience as an early stage investor to have invested in in great early stage companies that were looking for follow on investors uh, for their growth phase. And we, bas- I could just basically experience the lack of uh, independent financial investor with the focus on the energy sector. Um, so back in 2028 and uh, sorry, 2018, 19, um, again, great portfolio uh, companies and, and, and many strategic investors to invest in the energy sector at this stage, uh, deploying larger tickets, but much smaller late stage investor uh, being again, specialist. Um, and so I thought I was really um, missing in Europe. I think it was, uh, it's been also um, uh, clear when looking at the data and comparing to the US, you know, how much uh, how much uh, growth stage investments do you have in Europe as opposed to the US, which is a much more mature uh, market when it comes to VC. And the gap, um, the gap was quite of quite astonishing. So that was uh, that was kind of really, um, let's say, underlying the fact that there is a market opportunity uh, in the late stage uh, segment. Um, I think what we've seen today, um, or up until today at Klima, in terms of deal flow, really confirms that. So um, we, we do receive a lot of qualified deal flow. Um, and at the same time, so next to the market opportunity, um, well, uh, uh, also a great driver has been for me to um, understand that most of the technology that we need um, actually for a successful energy transition are there um, and are not in the seat phase anymore. Um, and basically, we'll need to accelerate the rollout and that you can do best with later stage financing. And I'd love to get into that technology. But before we go there, you mentioned independent financing. Now, there is some corporate financing for that growth phase, but 
Why is it important to have independent investors? From my point of view, um, independent investor brings continuity into the relationship. Venture capital is about long-term investing. And it's really about, uh, it's, it's teamwork, really. Uh, it's, it's a team play. And, and really that in the long term, it's it's very long-term project, right, which has its ups and downs and, and pros and cons, right? Uh, but and, and in order to, to be successful at doing that, you need, uh, I think, continuity and you need also aligned interest. And I think you do have that when um, basically for a founder, a founder is, um, you know, interesting in um, having an impact. And also at some point in time, um, uh, basically, if, if an investor or if a founder is, invest, is interested in having a successful exit, um, then I would say kind of the best um, investor that it could get on board as a lead investor is a financial investor. Now, we do co-invest with many strategic investors as well, uh, because we do see the value that uh, they would bring in combination with a financial investor. But in order to set up, uh, to align all the interest and to set up a good governance, I think having a professional financial investor on board is uh, is key uh, for a founder and uh, also key to, to ensure continuity. Um, as, as VC, we are not uh, prone to management cycles or sector cycles. Um, and, and well, basically we have long-term commitment from our investors as well. And I think that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, very important for founders. And before we dive into Klima, the Klima Fund itself, are there other barriers that, that you see in Europe? One is obviously the actual amount of financing, but do you see other uh, challenges, regular challenges, for example? There are definitely challenges uh, for the energy transition to be uh, to be successful. Um, there are indeed regulatory uh, challenges, uh, and that really comes to the fact that the system is um, is is going to be turned upside down, really from a, a very much centralized um, production to decentralized consumption. Uh, we're now moving on to very much decentralized uh, production and consumption, and this whole thing has to be flexibilized, right? So there are regulatory bottlenecks um, as well um, to do a few things, uh, for example, to understand better what's happening into the grid. Uh, for example, to get a faster connection uh, to the grid of these decentralized assets. Um, and and there are definitely uh, things to change in order to accelerate the rollout of smart meters, for example, and making sure that, you know, flexibility of demand is also there to go together and to match the flexibility of the production of the renewable assets. Um, so there are definitely um, regulatory things to be changed. Um, but there would also be uh, physical bottlenecks that we are trying also to uh, to solve um, with our investments. Can you just go back to the decentralized production and decentralized consumption and explain what exactly you mean by that? So in the past, you used to have uh, very large power plants, um, uh, either based on nuclear, gas or coal, especially here in Germany, in order to produce um, electricity. And this electricity would then be very centrally produced and then basically um, transported to the decentralized um, consumers, uh, being industries, being commercial clients or residential clients. And today, and, and this, this type of energy was very um, stably produced, right? Um, not very flexible, uh, frankly, for some of the technologies like nuclear, for example, uh, that needs to really be on baseload basis, but um, um, kind of running very stably and, uh, and basically something that is very dispatchable. Today, um, with the, the higher penetration of renewables, you first have the effect that the production is completely decentralized, 
right? All the kind of, you know, wind parks, solar parks, um, and all the, so the rooftop solar um, uh, generation assets, for example, are really contributing to the fact that production is not happening anymore, you know, at the high voltage grid, but is happening at kind of the lower voltage uh, part of the grid. Um, we're actually closer to the consumption, you would say, right? So that actually would have some, uh, could have some, let's say, physical advantage. Um, but the thing is that the management of the, the grid when it comes to, you know, balancing supply and demand is a completely different one um, than when you used to have a very, uh, well, when you used to have centralized assets producing um, and then the flow being just one directional um, up down to the to the low voltage part of the grid. And I think today um, the, the grid management is, uh, is definitely a, more of a challenge. Understanding sim simple things like, for example, where can a renewable asset be connected? Um, is a challenge because there is very low visibility into the vol low voltage uh, part of the grid and also into the medium voltage part of the grid, actually, where all these assets get connected. Um, and so what you really need to get there is much more transparency. And for this, one of the main uh, drivers is, uh, is, is digitalization. Um, and for this to happen, um, there are yeah there are a few hurdles to be overcome and that are being overcome because it's it's now very clearly understood and accepted um, also within the EU that you need to have a much higher degree of digitalization for the grid to be manageable in the future. And we have seen in the UK that the option, the regulator, has only just got a net zero mandate. What do you see across the rest of Europe? Do you see that the, the regulators have the mandate to change the grid, the power to encourage investment? And how far along that path are we to get into a position where we can have that decentralized production and consumption? It depends where in the European markets, because also the pressure uh, coming from the higher stake of the renewables in the grid is completely different, you know, from 60%, for example, in, in, in Spain to down to, to something like 40% in Germany. Uh, but still everywhere and at this kind of level of penetration, you already have a, a lot of pressure uh, from the grid because they are facing um, imbalances uh, much, much more often than they used to do. Um, and so I think there are... Two things here. I mean, the pressure to a certain extent has uh, become such that um, I guess definitely grid operators are starting to move. So we see more and more investment into indeed this type of technology uh, that are bringing the transparency that used to be there since 10 years, uh, but kind of, you know, not used to be rolled out. Um, and, and this is changing. Um, so... Um, there is a regulatory part of things, but there is also just, uh, you know, that the basically in order for the grid distributor to be able to uh, uh, to do their job at the end of the day, they, they will have to invest into this. And it's just a question of, you know, probably timing uh, and, and, and speed of the rollout. But this will need to happen in the next decade um, uh, if we are to keep up with the pace of renewables. And, and I think on this, uh, which is basically the fundament for this change to happen, on this, it's pretty clear that this will, uh, this will, this will keep on, on, on happening. Um, in Germany, the government just has um, also kind of changed the process when it comes you know, to permitting uh, and connection requests for projects to happen. And uh, and this is uh, yeah this is to a certain extent it should bottleneck or or accelerate uh, the pace of uh, of the penetration of renewables. And does that make it difficult when you're investing in companies if it's dependent on regulation? You know, the regulation might come faster or or slower than we would like or, or expect. So uh, how do you manage that? 
So uh, we never make investments that are really reliant on regulatory pressure. Even in, in the case of smart grid, to a certain extent, as long as the product is certified and has been tested and approved by some grid operators, it's not relying on regulation to be rolled out. It's relying on solving a pain for the customer. And this is how we approach each and every investment. What we see as of today in the space that we are acting in is that regulation is pushing for more, say, market demand than they would be otherwise. But the customer use case and the customer economics at you know resolving out of buying a product is not relying on subsidies, uh, not at all. And that shall never be the case. Subsidies are there maybe for investing in more copper uh, for the grid. But when it comes to digitalization, for example, there should be definitely a, a pain that needs to be solved and a, and a clear customer economics that's not relying too much on, on regulation. And when we think about the smart grid, we've heard stories about how batteries and EV cars will become actually part of the smart grid. When do you think something like that will be realized, that we've got an apartment block with the, the car park, with all these EVs, with the electricity flying both ways? How far away is that world? It's happening already, actually, especially in the UK. So uh, I didn't mention that, but flexibility of demand is going to be, you know, a very a key technology uh, for for the grid to be balanced in the future, and and also for, yeah, basically the supply and demand to happen. Um, so you definitely need storage, right? Because you have intermittent uh, production of electricity, but you can also decrease demand, and uh, and that's a key technology as well. Um, and both are complementary, actually. And especially in the UK, it's happening already. So um, you definitely can shift demand uh, when it comes to EV charging, for example. Um, and and with that, you can really unlock a lot of. Uh, um, let's say, yeah, lower demand or higher capacity for the grid, on the other hand, uh, to be balanced when, uh, yeah, there is, for example, no sign or no, no sun or, or too less wind. Um, and the flexibility of demand is, is, is already there in, as I said, in the UK. There are some countries uh, where it's coming um, and uh, that definitely needs the rollout of smart meters, for example, uh, which will be happening in, in, in Germany. But if you look at the rest of Europe, um, you have dynamic tariffs everywhere, which means that consumers actually get market signals on when they should consume and when they should not. So that means that if there is no, there is a lot of electricity in the market because the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, then you have lower prices and customers get just a, a clear incentive to, to then consume. They get forecast, they can plan. Um, and and that's, that's key also for, again, the demand to, to match um, the, the supply. So this is happening already. And uh, it's actually a very important um, uh, technology driving the energy transition forward. And now moving on to the, the, the Klima Fund itself. You talked earlier about moving from the early stage to more growth finance. So can you just explain the core mission or objective of the fund? Klima is a, is a late stage venture capital uh, fund. We're focusing on uh, solely on, on technology companies accelerating the energy transition. So we are uh, all energy specialists in, in the team. We do look at, in terms of the stage, companies that have a strong product market fit, um, again, that have uh, no technology risks. So we're happy to invest into further development of the product portfolio and of the technology. But there is definitely, you know, a product that is here in the market and has been, uh, uh, has been basically deployed successfully with, uh, with, with few and many customers, I would say, like repeating customers. Um, and these are normally companies that are in the range of 5 to 15 million euro revenue um, per year um, and uh, are, have a solution that is either hardware, a software solution or both um, that is being sold to uh, B2B customers uh, mostly. So this is, this is what we focus on. And can you give us a couple of examples of the actual technology itself? Yes, sure. For example, we invested in a, in a company in Switzerland um, called uh, Meteomatics. Um, what they do is they uh, deliver 
um, very precise um, forecast when it comes to uh, weather data. And they do this on a, they can do this on a sub square kilometer basis, and that's uh, very important. Again, in order to match supply and demand, more or less, uh, making sure that you have very strong prediction um, of your production is very important. And at the same time, um, the same data helps you to predict the demand uh, in a much better and precise way. Um, and by this, you can, well, basically balance much more effectively the grid. Uh, you can have much less buffering. Uh, you can uh, optimize um, the monetization of your parks. Um, and so it's these are data when they are very precise and again delivered in real time at the sub square kilometer level, as I mentioned. Um, these are data that are very valuable for many players uh, within the, the energy uh, value chain overhaul. Um, and so that is an example of uh, of investment that we have uh, made in the software space. Um, in let's say more toward the, the hardware space, uh, we invested in uh, in a company called Sunroof. Um, for which I'm actually the, the board on, and I think you mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, it's a it's a Swedish company that um, has uh, basically a concept to um, integrate PV within the roof, and by this really optimize um, the number of kilowatt peak per square meter of roof um, that you deploy and that you have. And by almost doubling this compared to decentralized solar, you can really accompany the electrification of the household. Um, so if you have a heat pump and a EV, you basically double the electricity consumption that you would otherwise have. And in order to do that, you need to somehow, you know, get a power plant on your roof uh, and, and quite a strong one. And this is what they what they deliver um, together with a nice design. Um, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, have uh, have known that uh, before we did the due diligence. But it's true that the aesthetics of decentralized solar um, has been a hurdle for many consumers out there. And they solve that on top of, of course, having less materials used, having an end-to-end -end process. If you need to change your roof, you basically have you know, just one partner that is uh, changing it in a, in a roof and in a roof that is actually you know, generating cash flow for you and is a great investment for you and actually pays for itself uh, over time. That's very interesting. So the actual sunroof would not be the, the traditional solar panel. It would be integrated into the roof and therefore aesthetically, as you said, that's much more appealing than when we see lots and lots of solar panels across housing. Yes, indeed. So they do use uh, a standard glass-to-glass -glass solar panel, uh, but they do have a, a special design on how they do the integration all around it. Um, and basically their case is really if you need a new roof or if you have a new build, um, it's basically a two-in-one solution that is really optimizing, again, electricity per square meter, um, or so electricity produced per square meter of roofs, um, and, and at the same time is uh, is kind of much cheaper and more material uh, saving than having a full roof with tiles being produced in a very energy intensive way. And on top, kind of, you know, the panels that are uh, put in a suboptimal way and actually not uh, really generating as much as they could. So their two use cases are re-roofing and, and new builds. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and that's that's their concept. And it's indeed kind of, you know, mostly geared toward B2B and residential today. Um, and, uh, and, and more of a, they're not installing on their own uh, and they're not manufacturring anything, but they are offering the customers an end-to-end -end solution um, today in three countries, in Sweden, Poland, and in Germany. 
And on that, does Klima as a fund focus mainly in Europe or do you look outside of Europe? We do fo focus on Europe for 80% of our investor mandate. Um, within Europe, our, uh, let's say our DNA and our strategy is more to be a lead investor um, and you know, build up consortium for, of investors for investments that, that we do. Um, tickets that we deploy are around 8 to 10 and the rounds that we're participating in are um, in normally between 10 and, and 50. Um, we can go beyond that as well, but that's kind of, you know, the, the sweet spot of what we do. And we are also allowed to uh, do co-investment for 20% of our investment strategy in North America. And the great thing about that is, of course, that, you know, that we can cross-fertilize uh, the European and the, and the US uh, or slash Canada portfolio. Um, we, can, we can expand our network um, also for the European company and uh, we can help the North American portfolio uh, basically find uh, find find business or find a food here here in Europe. And since you mentioned North America, have you seen any impact of the US Inflation Reduction Act in the on US market? Yes, definitely. There is an impact uh, of, of this uh, regulation. It's uh, also a very, let's say, uh, powerful one. Um, it's uh, Let's say I, I hope it's going to be a sustainable one, um, but it's uh, it's definitely uh, uh, quite geared toward reducing capex for the investments that needs to be done uh, for the energy transition to happen. Um, and uh, well, we know it from also our own portfolio that it's it's you know definitely having a, having a strong uh, a strong impact uh, also when it comes to you know boosting uh, sales etc. But um, again, we're not relying uh, we should not be relying on this. Um, it's always a question of, you know, of how sustainable are these uh, measures over time. Um, we've seen, I think, in Europe, when it comes to subsidizing the energy transition, so many ups and downs and cycles um, that uh, I think it's, it's clear that, uh, yeah, we should, not be, uh, we should not be counting on this. And actually, we don't really have to, um, because we, we strongly believe, actually, that the energy transition would happen uh, with or without subsidies. Uh, you probably need some scheme uh, in order to make sure that some maybe emerging and necessary uh, technology like storage actually come over uh, and you make sure that you bridge the gap between the physical you know, project planning and actually having things there when you need them. And I think this is why actually regulation should be used, but not you know, to... yeah create or inflate a market um, that, that is actually already there and, and growing very, very fast. Moving on to the raising of the, the funds for, for Klima, uh, the capital raising, the timeline on that and who your underlying sponsors are. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we had our first closing in May 2021. Um, when we started off, the target size was 150 million. Uh, we finalized fundraising in December 2022. Uh, with, with 210 million, which uh, was the hard cap of, of our fund. Overall, um, in terms of our investors, we have uh, more than half of our, our, of our capital committed coming from institutional financial investors. Um, so these are you know, banks, pension funds, uh, funds of funds, um, also insurance companies. And uh, one fourth um, of the rest, sorry, one half of the rest, so one fourth in total, would be coming from. Uh, uh, energy players, so corporates, uh, you know, uh, having an understanding and 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 uh, a view within the the energy uh, value chain, um, and uh, among others, actually one of our sponsor uh, who was basically the first to commit uh, a large amount of capital to Clima to start with, uh, who is Enagas, uh, the gas distributor of, of Spain. 
Um, and uh, the last fourth uh, is uh, coming from public institutional investors, uh, the European Investment Fund, um, together with the ECO, uh, who is basically the public investor uh, in uh, Spain, investing uh, in funds um, uh, among among others. So having uh, basically the national strategy of the of the EAF for Europe. And you mentioned asset owners there, the insurance companies, pension funds. That fits very neatly for them into their commitments under, for example, net zero asset owner alliance, where to be aligned, you need to commit some amount of funds to the energy transition and, and these type of venture stage investments. Yeah, on this, I, I didn't mention yet, but Klima is an Article uh, 9 front uh, from the as regulated by, uh, by the, uh, the SFDR uh, in, in Europe. And so we indeed have, uh, well, developed a methodology when it comes to impact, um, even if it's kind of, you know, the core of our investment strategy to invest in, in companies accelerating the energy transition. We do have, uh, of course, also all the reporting obligations that an Article 9 fund has. Um, and we also do have an incentive on the impact of the portfolio uh, when it comes to environmental impact uh, as a team. Can you just, just flesh out that a bit for us, this incentive? What does that mean? How does it how does it work in reality? Yeah. So in reality, it works uh, uh, the following. So uh, basically all fund managers do have a financial incentives based on the financial hurdle. Um, and we have that hurdle as the first one and, and, and the main one. And then we have a second one, uh, which is an impact hurdle. Um, and we fix that um, on a bottom-up basis together with our supervisory board. Um, we basically, per investment, agree on um, big KPIs when it comes to impact. It has to change from one company to the other because when you invest in enabler, the impact is not necessarily, you know, a completely direct one and cannot always be measured in, you know, CO2 emission reduction or savings. So we do have uh, that bottom-up approach and we agree with them on targets to be uh, to be fulfilled in the long run. Uh, for for these investments, and that's the second hurdle that we have when it comes to uh, the team incentive. That's fascinating, and and maybe while we're on the investment process, we got to think about how you look at companies. And as a value investor, you know, I think about margins, cash flows, normalized earnings, and valuations based on these characteristics, like price to book, enterprise value to operating earnings, or EV to to revenue. But I guess for your investment process with venture capital, they often don't have these characteristics that are, are, are likely to be more with mature companies. So how do you think about investing? What do you look for in companies? We have probably more data points than you to make a decision, um, but let's say less uh, standardized uh, data points. Probably, I guess that's the that's the comparison or the parallel. So in our in our investment process, we. Um, we do have uh, a few things or yeah, we do have, again, many data points that come into play. Um, the first one is always product market fits. Uh, as I mentioned uh, today, it's also one of the one of the core um, investment criteria that we have a very strong product market fit. Um, that means that um, the product of the company really solves an important issue and does it without regulatory, uh, you know, push, um, as as we mentioned earlier. So having a very strong product market fit is uh, is a very important criteria for us. Um, it's even more important in the earlier stage um, uh, of being an investor, but it basically always Always helps also when you when you have uh, you know a growth phase in, in front of you because the product market fits needs to adapt over time um, 
uh, and the reason is that the companies that we invest in are in very dynamic markets. Um, so so having having this and having the capability to adapt uh, over time is, is very important. Um, the management team that we invest in um, are responsible for the execution um, and uh, therefore they have to be not only experts in, in their market, in their domain, um, but also very strong executors. Um, we do kind of, you know, support and uh, spare when it comes to strategic uh, topics and 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 all this. But at the end of the of the, of the day, execution really is king, um, and and therefore we uh, do look very strongly at the track record of uh, the investment teams that that uh, we support. Um, one resulting let's say, data point out of that is basically commercial traction uh, for us. Uh, we're not afraid of um, taking, for example, industrialization risks uh, when, you know, a product has kind of really um, um, a product that needs to be industrialized um, has uh, really convinced uh, uh, clients in a significant way. Um, so we would, you know, not take a, a market risk, but uh, but things like industrialization risk is, is no problem. Um, and um, and I mean market depth also uh, definitely is uh, is something that we that we really look at. Um, that's uh, important when it comes to uh, topics like valuation as well. Um, but uh, when it comes to that last topic, uh, we do take into account um, a few other um, a few other data points being uh, the amount of capital that is needed over time and the exit proceeds that we believe we can achieve uh, in a few years down the road with, with that investment. And because you're sitting on the board or you're observing the board closely, what do you think you bring to management, to the founders of these companies? What's the experience? Is it in terms of the energy experience you have, in terms of your, your understanding of, of climate um, and the regulation coming from that aspect? Of what do you bring to the board? What is your role? So I think as a, as a specialist uh, uh, within the, the energy sector or as an investor specialist, uh, I would say we do bring to the board um, um, some experience when it comes to the evolution of the markets that the company are in over time. Uh, we do bring benchmarks because we you know do see many companies in the different sectors and we see how different problems can be solved in a different ways. Um, so I think we do bring in some some benchmark benchmark and market intelligence uh, to the table. Um, we have lived uh, a few entrepreneurship uh, stories, um, let's say more than the founders that we normally uh, work with, even if not in the same way, um, but also quite intensely at the end of the day because we are in very um, it's a very stable uh, contact with with the managers. Uh, it's not you know one quarterly board meeting, uh, and and four per year, right? It's 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 much uh, more uh, exchange than that. Um, so we've, I think we are a good sparing partner uh, for them when it comes to uh, you know we have option A, B, C on the table. Uh, where should we go for? And the board needs to make a decision at the end of the day. It's just maturing a decision process, uh, asking the right questions and making sure that uh, everyone kind of feels good with the decision that is made and making sure that things are being uh, executed and, and, and followed up on. And the last few years have been incredible in the markets. We've had very high valuations and perhaps it was difficult to put money to work uh, at the beginning. But can you just talk about maybe some of the, the most challenging times in your career, either in individual investments or when, as we've seen, that the market valuation is very high or very difficult to, to, to raise capital? 
Yes, I mean, when it comes to the last two years, uh, 2021 and 2022, I think it's fair to say that uh, um, there's been a bubble in, in the market in our space. Um, thankfully, we definitely also have not a very, we have a lot of deal flow, as I mentioned. So we do see a lot of potential investments, uh, which basically helped us also still to, you know, deploy on time uh, the fund that we've had at very, well, let's say at, at reasonable terms and at fair terms as, as, as we like. As a late stage investor, we definitely need to be uh, disciplined uh, when it comes to, uh, to price when, when we invest. Um, so that's, you know, another parallel to you being a value investor. I think we see it the same way. <clears throat> and so in, in the times where, where there is a lot of uh, maybe hype or on, on certain topics, yeah, what we've done is that we have still, you know, uh, eight sub-segments of the strategy. Um, and uh, within these sub-segments, we still have, you know, at least three or four topics that are uh, great for investment or on which we have a, we've built up an investment thesis and we get deal flow on. So what we've done is that we've concentrated ourselves on the segments that have not been hyped in the last couple of two years. Um, and uh, we did that, I think, successfully. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's been the main challenge um, because we've seen many, many good companies. Uh, but we also uh, said many times no due to conditions uh, that we didn't like. I feel your pain there over you know, the last 10 years value investing has been very difficult. There was one point where we just didn't see any value in the market and then value was everywhere, but nobody wants to put money into value. So but you need to keep being disciplined, right? I guess that's that's really, I think, going through the cycles and uh, and uh, at the same time kind of holding the holding the discipline is, uh, is an important thing. Uh, so this is something we really definitely look at. Um, and again, uh, plenty of, of investment opportunities also definitely help not to uh, or to remain or to, to, to keep discipline on that. Absolutely. And to conclude, if you weren't an investor, what career path may you have followed? Uh, I think I would have then gone the way of the entrepreneurship uh, way within probably within that same sector. Um, I think before uh, in the last uh, 13, 14 years of investment and, and especially in the second part, I've asked myself, OK, do you want to go on the other side? Um, because it's, of course, also something that I, I really uh, love and really, uh, really live for. And I'm also very engaged with, with the portfolio. That's kind of, you know, the best part of a job as, as an investor to, you know, see things moving really in the, in the real economy, basically. Um, so I think I, I would have uh, gone down that, I uh, would have um, uh, gone for, for entrepreneurship in that space and, 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 and help out in, in that sector. Um, but I guess my conclusion after thinking a lot about it um, and before creating Klima has been that yeah, after 13, 14 years of experience, you've accumulated something. Um, so, you know, starting from scratch again in, in the execution or in the operational execution uh, space might be a, a bit of a, of a waste of accumulated experience. So um, I'm very happy that I went for, you know, for uh, setting up Klima and uh, and uh, yeah, trying to use that experience for for allocating our capital in the right way. Well, Lucille, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and great hearing your story and having advice from outside the UK. Venture capital is so vital to a successful transition, but we hear too little about it. And we've, uh, uh, as you mentioned earlier on, we just don't have enough growth finance in Europe and, and that includes the UK. But thank you for the taking the time to share your knowledge and insights with us on our CFA UK podcast. Thanks a lot. It's been a great pleasure to be here. And thank you, our audience, for listening. If you found this conversation as interesting as I have, then please hit like and share with others. And do please send us your feedback on the Climate Change Series. 
We're always looking to improve and always keen to speak to those that can educate us on some aspect of the transition. So for now, take care and goodbye.